0: We have uh, quite a bit to get to today, so we're going to need all the time that we have. Um, Today we're wrapping up our study of the Trinity. We all sat back there, Malachi. I didn't check that. Is that already gone? Okay. Um, And we're going to be tying up quite a few loose ends. A few issues with the Trinity I wanted to make sure that we covered. Uh, Last week we saw that the Son has been subject to the authority of the Father, uh, from eternity past, throughout his earthly life, even now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and in eternity future, where Christ will rule over all the world, uh, and the only one above Jesus in authority will be the Father. That's First Corinthians 15. So that's the uh, theological, if you, want to, if you want the terms for it, eternal subordination of the Son is what that's known as. That um, the Son is eternally under the authority of the Father. Not once in Scripture does the Son <clears throat> um, send the Father, or uh not once does the Father obey the Son. It's always the other way around. The Father has authority over the Son. The Son sits at the right hand of the Father. The, the, that pattern is consistent and clear throughout the Bible. The Father has the authority to plan, initiate, command, and send. Authority that the Son and Spirit do not have, but rather submit to joyfully. John 20, uh, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Uh, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and, and uh, your Father, to my God and your God. Just notice there that Jesus refers to his Father as my God. Even in that, showing the authority that the Father has over him. Now, our modern culture <clears throat> thinks that this would make the son inferior, right? When we see uh, one person submitting to the authority of another, we automatically think, well, this person's superior, this person's inferior. Uh, But these are voluntary roles, not to be taken as insulting in any way. The three persons of the Trinity are equal in essence, but they have different roles. And so the submission uh, of the son to the father, clearly taught in scripture, also, the equality of the Son with the Father is taught in Scripture. Both of those concepts are taught in some places side by side, as we'll see Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so there you see he's in the form of God. He doesn't count equality a thing to be grasped, which basically is just a way of saying, He is equal with the Father. The Son was equal with the Father, but He didn't hold on to that equality. Instead, verse 7, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Well, obedient to whom? Of course, obedient to His Father. And so, you see there, He's equal with the Father, verse 6, and yet He's submitting willingly. He empties himself. He joyfully and willingly submits to the will of his Father. And so, verse 9, Therefore God, which would be shorthand for the Father, has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in things... uh, I'm sorry, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So even in the exaltation of Christ... And the worship of us toward Christ, ultimately, it's glorifying the Father. So you see the order of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, priority is um, not to be taken as superiority. Okay, so there's a rank of sorts in within the Trinity, and yet the three, the three are equally God. Uh, there's subordination of role or function among them, which constitutes at least part of what distinguishes the one from the other. And yet, they are all equal. They are all equal in essence. Uh, James White in his book on the Trinity says, difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. That is, just because the Father, Son, and Spirit do different things does not mean that any one of them is inferior to the others in nature. So they're all equally God, and yet they voluntarily take on different roles of authority and submission. John 16, verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you. He's talking to his disciples, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there you see even the spirit is being sent but he's not speaking on his own authority. He's speaking whatever he hears, and he does so to glorify Christ. And so there you see, again, the roles and relationships within the Trinity. Um, I don't understand <clears throat> how you could distinguish between Father, Son, and Spirit without these roles and these different harmonious relationships. If you just think um, they all have the same role, they're all equal, they don't submit to one another, which is what many Christians believe. Um I don't know how you could then distinguish between Father and Son, or between Son and Spirit, because the law of indiscernibility of identicals applies then, right? If everything you say about A is also true of B, then A is B, okay? So you could say of me, I'm, uh, I'm David Green, I'm married to Catherine, I work at Amazon, I pastor Lakeshore Baptist Church in Gary, Indiana, okay? All of those things are true of me, and they're not true of anyone else, okay? When you line up those properties, um, in other words, a way of um, distinguishing between people is by saying, okay, these things are true of this person, these things are true of this person, and if all of those properties are identical, you're talking about the same person. Does that make sense? You understand where I'm, okay. And so when it comes to Father, Son, and Spirit, there have to be things that are true of the Father that are not true of the Son. Otherwise, the Father is the Son. If we're gonna say they're distinct persons, which we see clearly in Scripture, I mean, they communicate with one another, they send one another, all of that. So they're distinct from one another, then that means there must be things true of each one of them that is not true of the others. And I'm not sure what all of those distinguishing markers are, uh, but I think the clearest in Scripture is their roles and relationships that they take on, where the Father has authority over the Son and Spirit, um, the Father is the planner, the originator. Uh, the Son is the, uh, the agent of God. The Spirit empowers and guides. and all, So they have different roles, but they work harmoniously. So they're equal in essence, and yet the Son and Spirit submit joyfully to the authority of the Father. John 14, verse 28, Jesus speaking again, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Well, in what sense? I mean, in what sense is the Father greater than the Son? Philippians two says they're equal. Remember, uh, you know, Colossians says in Christ the fullness of of deity dwelt. So if they're equally God, what does it mean the Father is greater than the Son? Well, it means the Father is above the Son in terms of authority. And so when we say that the three persons are distinct from one another, I think the persons are not to be distinguished ontologically. Okay, they're not, it's not like one is more God than the other or one created the other. No, they're all equally God, eternally God. But the distinctions between Father, Son, and Spirit is primarily, at least, their roles and relationships. An illustration of this might be at a school, right? You've got a a, a principal and a janitor. Okay, they have clear roles. The principal is the authority. The janitor is under him in terms of his function or role. And yet, ontologically, they're equal. They're both human beings. It's not like one is more of a person than the other. They just have roles that are clear, and the authority and submission there is is obvious. And so the main thing that distinguishes Father from Son and Son from Spirit is the roles that they voluntarily take on. Now, this brings up an important question, uh, one that I think I mentioned in passing a few weeks ago. Are there three wills in God, or is there one will? In other words, do the three persons have distinct volition, or are like like do they have uh, separate wills that work together? Okay, or is there only one will? So, in other words, basically what we're asking is: is volition or will a part of the person or a part of the essence? Right? We have three persons, one essence, um, and. I wouldn't be dogmatic on this, so I think there's room to disagree, but I lean toward person, because I think in order for uh, one person to submit to the authority of another, you have to have two wills there. In order for me to submit to someone else's authority, uh, that that sort of entails that, yes, I have my own volition, and I'm choosing to submit my will to the will of another. Um, here's a few scriptures and, all of these, you could present counter-arguments for why it's not, um, well, let's just read these first. Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes a little farther, he falls on his face and prays, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So you see two distinct wills between the Son and the Father. The Son is um, submitting his will to the will of the Father. Okay, now, <clears throat> those who would disagree with me on this point would say, well, that's only in his humanity. and So Jesus had a human will in submission to the divine will, maybe. Uh, but I think there's enough other passages. Matthew 26, verse 42, it's just a few verses later. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. Uh, John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, speaking of the Father, and to accomplish His work. Uh, John 6:38. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And so there you see the Son carrying out the will of the Father, not doing His own will, but doing the will of the Father. Um, <clears throat> Romans 8:27. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, God there being the Father. So there you see <clears throat> the Spirit interceding according to the will of the Father. That, again, seems to at least imply to me you've got two distinct wills. And the Spirit is submitting to the will of the Father. Uh, lastly, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each, individ- each one individually as he wills. This is talking about uh, spiritual gifts in the church, right? The Spirit gives gifts, of of teaching, of exhortation, all those different things to each person in the church. And notice there it says, individually as he, the Spirit, wills. So there again, it seems to imply a distinct will, uh, three distinct wills within the Trinity that work harmoniously. So the Son and Spirit submit to the will of the Father, the Spirit submits to the will of the Father and the Son. Um, That's my understanding of it, though I would not be dogmatic about that. A couple of things I want to make sure we get to. In what sense is God one and in what sense is he three? This is really the hardest uh, question to answer. Uh, How is God three? How is God one? I think we see the the threeness of God pretty clearly um, in those texts that we've been reading really all morning so far uh, and and in the last several weeks where you see the the Father, Son, and Spirit relating to one another. Well, they're obviously not the same person. They have to be distinct from one another just because of uh, how they relate to one another. So, the question then is, in what sense is there only one God? Uh, How is God one? Genesis 11, verse 6. This is at the Tower of Babel. Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they will purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Probably a familiar story to many of you. They're at the Tower of Babel. God is Tower of Babel. God is looking down on these people. that are building this tower. And he says, the people are one. Okay, now what does that mean in that sense? Does this mean there's only one person? Well, of course not. What does it mean? Unity, right? uh, uh, Oneness of purpose, if you will. Uh, Multiple people, and yet the people are one. Okay, we understand that. Um, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Okay, same Hebrew word, ichad. It's just It just means one. <laughs> so you could make the argument, well, what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 6 is the same thing that God was saying in Genesis 11 about the people, that there are basically, and, and I wouldn't say this, but there's basically three gods, but they're just working together as a team, in the same way that there were multiple people, and yet they were unified in their purpose. Um John 17, this would be another text that some would uh, point to about this. John 17, verse 20. Jesus speaking, he's praying to the Father here. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, Even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you love me. So, we as Christians are to be one as Christ is one with the Father. And again, I think clearly unity of purpose, working harmoniously toward a common end, is what's in view there. Now, I think all of that's true. Uh, but I, at the end of the day, I think that falls short. I think there's more we have to say about the oneness of God than simply these are three distinct persons that just work together as a team. Um, because we don't have three gods. We have one God. Over and over throughout the Bible, God says, I am God and there is no one else. The three persons share the same nature. And this is... You know, we could distinguish between nature of kind and nature of identity. Nature of kind would be, you know, for us, I'm a human, you're a human. We share the same nature in that sense. Nature of identity is different, though. We're not talking about three gods that are just similar in nature. No, we're talking about three distinct personal expressions of one God. So there's one being and yet three persons. That's why we don't uh, refer to God as a they, but as a him, right? We don't say... When God does something, they did it. No, we say he did it. So we understand the Trinity is one God, one being, and yet there's plurality within that one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, As our statement of faith says, this one God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each Trinitarian person has always existed and is fully God, equal in essence, yet distinct persons executing harmonious roles. So, yes, it's true, obviously. The three persons have one, are unified in purpose. They work harmoniously with one another as a team. If you want to say that, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we have to affirm what the Old Testament so clearly and dogmatically teaches over and over and over, that there is only one God. Uh, If God wanted us to think that there were three gods, he would have told us there were three gods. And yet he makes very clear, only one God. Uh, One more little section before we get to the end here. The image of God and complementarianism. Let's move on to this, uh, talk about some kind of tangential issues. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Hopefully, as we understand God's, as we understand God better, having studied him for several months here, uh, hopefully this will shed a little bit of light on what it means to be made in God's image. Let me start off by just saying, I don't know fully what that means. I think there's uh, Yeah, I wouldn't say I I quite have total clarity on what it means to be made in God's image. But uh, to one degree, I think it refers to that which distinguishes us from everything else in creation. Okay, we as humans have the ability to reason, communicate. We have self-awareness that is unlike uh, any other creatures on earth, right? I understand that, you know, dolphins click or something and they can kind of communicate. But come on, that's not the same. They're not writing poetry. Uh, There's definitely a higher form of life in humanity. Than any of the animals. This is one reason I, I'm not a fan of people uh, referring to humans as basically another species of animal. I don't think that's right. We're, we are, yes, we're mammals. I understand that, but we are a higher form of existence than any animal on Earth. Uh, we are the pinnacle of God's creation, and that's what it means partly that we're made in His image. Okay, so Genesis 1.26, God said, "Let us make man in our image." After our likeness, again notice those plural pronouns, the Trinity talking obviously there. And let them, humans, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so a part of what it means to be made in God's image is to be set above the rest of the animal kingdom. We are uniquely made in his image. We're given authority over all the earth, and all of the animals are are made for us. Sort of like the angels are... Servants of God. Uh, animals were made for humans. <clears throat> you know, again, if we were to say humans are just another species of animals, well, would would we say that God is just like the angels? Not, of course not. <laughs> no, uh, God is above the the angels. He's a higher form of existence. They exist for Him, and in the same way, humans have dominion over the animal kingdom. Uh, the next verse, verse twenty-seven. So God created man in His image. And the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so here we learn something further. Male and female together make the image of God. It's not just, you know, Adam was made in God's image and Eve, well, you know, you're a second-class you know, form of existence. No, uh, the two together make the image of God. And in chapter 2, we're told, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so in marriage, there is a picture of the nature of God. The two come together and they make one flesh. And that union is, is uh, part of, uh, it's an image of God, right? The union of marriage. Just like in God, there's uh, two, two persons that come together as one. And there are roles and relationships in marriage that mirror the roles and relationships of authority and submission In the Trinity, and here comes the controversial part that nobody likes, but it's in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, Authority and submission are essential to relationships. If you have multiple persons with multiple wills in a relationship, uh, they will either butt heads and have competition, or there will be clear roles established. And so just like in the Trinity, where the son submits willingly to the authority of the father, so in marriage, the wife submits to the authority of her husband. This is one reason um, I think many Christians want to deny the eternal subordination of the son. Uh, they don't want to believe that Jesus submitted to the father eternally, because then they would have to also accept... uh that women should submit to their to their husbands because that's what the verse— I mean, that's the comparison Paul makes. I didn't come up with that. He says, you know, the head of a woman is her husband. The head of Christ is God. He makes that comparison. And so just like the son submits willingly to the uh, to the father's will, so in human relationships, at least in marriage, authority and submission roles are clearly established as husband and wife. Now, is Christ inferior to the father? course not. We've already said they're equal in essence. They're equally God. Difference in role does not mean one is inferior to the other. And so in the same way, when a wife willingly submits to the authority of her husband, she's not inferior for doing so. Uh, Not at all. That's exactly what the world wants you to think. The world thinks that a woman is in bondage if she lives in submission to her husband. Uh, But that is her God-given role. And by the design of God, from the beginning, that was what marriage was supposed to be, a beautiful image of God, where one person bends their will in submission to the authority of the other. Now, uh, some of you might be thinking, uh, isn't that a result of the fall? Uh, the, the, the wife being in submission to her husband? Uh, no, that's a common misunderstanding. Um, prior, prior to the fall of man, the establishment of this relationship of marriage, authority and submission between Adam and Eve was already there. Genesis 2.18, uh, Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So you see there even, when he before Eve even existed, uh, she was created as a helper to the man. Genesis 2.22, The rib <clears throat> that, that uh, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Eve was made as a helper for Adam. Uh, You notice in those verses, Adam named Eve, which would be another sign of his authority over her. Uh, He gives her her name. Yet they're equal in essence. They're both humans. They're both made in God's image. But there were clearly established roles of authority and submission from the very creation. So what happened in the fall is not that suddenly the husband has authority over the wife. No, what happened in the fall is that those um roles were already established. Now they just got complicated, okay? Uh Genesis 3:16. This is when when God is speaking to Eve and saying, you know, because you took of the fruit, because you did this, here's going to be your punishment. Uh verse 16 to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay. So initially, when God made Adam and Eve, there was willing authority and submission. It was a beautiful, a perfect relationship where the two fulfilled their roles and everything was great. Then sin enters the picture, and in that relationship now there's competition. For the first time, Eve's desire would be contrary to her husband, and she would have to submit unwillingly to his authority. So the relationship between the man and his wife would no longer work in perfect harmony like God had designed. But those roles, they were established at the very creation, not at the fall. Okay? At the fall, basically, everything got messed up. Okay? Think of the, the punishments God gives. He says uh, to the woman, you're going to have pain in childbearing. Okay? Well, he, does that mean that um, now the woman is going to give birth to children? No, that was already, that pre-existed. At the very creation, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Now it's just going to be harder. Okay? Um, Was work a result of the fall? No. Prior to the fall, God had given uh, Adam a garden to till, right? And he had given him the job of naming the animals and different things. He had given him work to do. At the fall, he doesn't say, okay, now you have to work. No, you were already working. Now he says, you're going to be sweating. The ground's not going to produce as well. And so uh, his work gets harder. And so in the same way, this relationship of authority and submission in marriage pre-exists the fall, but the fall complicates it. Now you've got competition in marriage where Eve is no longer willingly and joyfully submitting to Adam's, you know, and it's easy when Adam's not a sinner, right? I mean, it's easy to submit to somebody's will well when they're perfect. Uh, now those roles have just become really complicated because sometimes Adam's going to do things that are wrong <laughs> and Eve is going to have to submit unwillingly to Adam's, my, my wife is, is smiling back here. Uh, Eve is going to have to submit unwillingly to uh, her husband's authority. And so the roles existed prior to the fall. They just got complicated and messed up because that's what sin does. Sin takes the good things that God has made and complicates them. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is talking about in church life. That's one reason we don't believe women should be pastors, by the way. Just a little side note there. Uh, verse 13, though, you see his reason. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So you notice his argument. It's not, uh, you know, the women should not be teachers in the church because of the fall. He gets to that later. But first he says uh, they shouldn't be teachers in the church because Adam was the, the, the one formed first. In other words, even in the created order, okay, that, that Adam was created first and Eve was created out of Adam's rib. Those roles were a part of that created order. They were not a result of the fall, but the authority and submission was uh, God intended. The fall caused that uh, order to be disrupted with competition and arguments so that our marriages are no longer perfect images of the relationships of the father and son, obviously. Uh, But a part of what it means still to be made in God's image is the relationship of a husband and wife living out their proper roles. And so our imperfect relationships are an image of the perfect, harmonious relations of the Trinity, where the Son's will is to do the will of the Father and glorify Him. The Spirit's will is to carry out the will of the Son and Father and glorify them. And the Father's will is to rule the universe through His Son. He's given all judgment to the Son, given Him a name that's above every name, and He has given to the Son a kingdom to rule over the hearts of men. And so these three persons take on voluntary roles without competition. All right. Um, Let's see here. If we have time at the end here, we'll get questions. I don't know if there are any pressing ones, uh, but I'll try to get to that. I want to close, though, by reading just a few texts um, and show you kind of a concept that I mentioned in passing last week. That is reading the Bible with Trinitarian lenses. I get that phrase from Bruce Ware, uh, where basically we're reading the New Testament. Uh, Don't just gloss over words like he in reference to God. Instead, stop and ask which person is being identified. Because normally, it's a specific person within the Trinity. And we tend to just kind of generalize that. Uh, we just think, you know, generic God. We don't, we don't ask which person is being talked about. Uh, but I want us to walk through uh, two passages. I don't have these on the screen. So if you have a Bible, um, Ephesians 1 is where we're going to be going to. If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you. But Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, We're going to read this entire chapter. and We're going to focus our attention on the Trinitarian references that, again, we typically tend to gloss over. So Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. One of my goals in doing this First of all, is just to show you that the Trinity is all over the New Testament, Uh, even in places where maybe you're very familiar, but you just haven't noticed uh, the Trinitarian references. But Paul especially, uh, he cannot help but think in Trinitarian terms. And so this language comes up repeatedly throughout the New Testament. Also, um, another reason I I do this is hoping to reinforce some of the things we talked about the last couple of weeks the roles and relationships that the three persons have. And you'll see those again over and over uh, throughout the New Testament. So we begin in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 1, which says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Okay, who's God there? The Father, okay? Typically, almost always, God is the Father. All right, so Paul was an apostle of Christ, chosen by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus Uh, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, who's the first he there? In verse 4, I'm going to have to make you think. Sorry about this. Even as he chose us in him. Who's the he and who's the him? Anyone want to take a stab at that? Yes, the Father and then the Son. So the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we'll see, you ask, well, is that just a guess? Well, no, when we get to the next verse, we'll see why I say that. The Father chose us, verse 4, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the Father. Verse 5. In love, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so there you see that all the he's that proceeded were the Father. Because you get to the end there and he says he does this through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, which would be the Father. Verse 6. To the praise of his, the Father's, glorious grace, with which he, the Father, has blessed us in the Beloved. Notice the capital B there. It's talking about Christ. So the Father has blessed us in Christ, verse 7, in him, which would be Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, the his there being the Father. Uh, we, we see that because verse 8, which He lav- so his grace which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, the Father, according to the Father's purpose, which the Father set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, which I take to be Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, in Christ, uh, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, which of course would be Father. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His, the Father's glory. In Him, you also, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the who there is the Spirit. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of what? What? salvation, right? That's what he's talking about in this context, how we've been forgiven of our sins, we've been given eternal life. And yet there's a sense in which, and you see this in all of Paul's writings, we are still awaiting our final salvation, right? We're still in our fallen state. We still sin. So we're still awaiting the future redemption of our bodies. But uh, continuing on there, verse 14, uh, he's the guarantee, the spirit's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, which would be the father. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, which I take to be Christ, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the Father, what are the riches of his, the Father's, glorious inheritance, in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his the Father's power toward us who believe according to the working of his the Father's great might that he the Father worked in Christ when he the Father raised him Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he the Father put all things under his Christ's feet and gave him Christ as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all i mean how do you read the new testament and not see the trinity uh, it is just all throughout that chapter over and over you see the distinct roles of the father and the son the father choosing us in christ the father raising christ from the dead seating him at his right hand uh, over and over again I really want to do Romans 8, but I don't think we have time. Uh, read through sometime Romans 8, 26, uh, through the end of the chapter, and you'll see some of the same type of thing, where you just see this tr- beautiful Trinitarian language, a specific Trinitarian language, where the pronouns are, if you pay attention carefully and trace them through, you can tell who's being referred to in which verses. Uh, let's go to the last, let's see, we're almost at the last section here. Uh, i got a quote here from James White. The gospel is the means by which the Father in eternal love and mercy saves men through the redeeming work of the Son, Jesus Christ, and draws them to himself by the power and regenerating work of the Spirit. So you see the three persons working together in the salvation of people. Um, The Trinity is really at the heart of the gospel. It's, It's foundational to what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Second Corinthians one twenty one. It is God who established us with you in Christ. So the God there being Father, right? the Father has established us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has uh, who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so you see the three persons working together in the salvation of people. Uh, last section here is how should we relate? How should we think of our relationship? To the triune God. Okay, I hope by now you see clearly the Trinity is taught all throughout the Bible, uh, especially in the New Testament. I do not understand how somebody can read uh, Ephesians and Romans and some of these books that Paul's written and not see that we worship a triune God. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the Christian faith is inherently Trinitarian. Uh, So, how do we relate to the triune God? This gets to something uh, Deborah asked a few weeks ago, and I gave a very short answer. I'm going to give a a broader answer here. Matthew 6, verse 8. Uh, we pray to the Father. Jesus said, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So notice we pray to the Father. Second, we pray in Jesus' name, which means we understand that the only access that we have to the Father is because of our union with Christ. Okay, Ephesians 2 is a good thing to read if you want to get Deeper on this. A couple of verses of John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we pray to the Father, uh, we <clears throat> but we do so through Christ. In other words, we understand it's only through Jesus that we can have access to the Father. It's only because of his death that, that atoned for our sins. It's only because of his righteous life that is imputed to us. That's the only reason we have any standing to come to God the Father. Uh, Hebrews 7, Consequently, He, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God the Father through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So we have the access. We can draw near to the Father because Christ intercedes for us. He is our go-between. It's only through Christ uh, that we have authority to come and pray to the Father. Verse 4, though. Since we have this great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we have access through Jesus Christ to the Father. And then we see the Spirit also has a role uh, in our prayers. Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray, as, uh, pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searched his hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we pray to the Father. We pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, which I, I don't know exactly if I explain that well. It's sort of like, um, well, I don't really have time to get into a long illustration here. But we only have access to approach the Father because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and yet we, when we pray, the Spirit intercedes. He's the go-between between us and the Father, taking our prayers and bringing them to the Father. And uh, somehow in those verses, it seems like he fixes them. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, and so the Spirit intercedes for us. It's almost like he, he grabs our prayers, drops the things that we shouldn't have said, and tweaks them a bit, and then takes them to the Father. Uh, and so all three persons there are in, um, are in view, even in just the way that we relate to God. And so uh, maybe that helps you in your personal life. Pray to the Father. Uh, we don't pray, you know, to the triune God, this, this, and this. No, over and over and over throughout the New Testament, we pray to the Father. And we pray, in Jesus' name, which is not just a little tag you put on the end of your prayer uh, to make it reach heaven, right? I used to think that when, when at the end of a prayer we say, in Jesus' name, which I don't have a problem saying that. Um, but what that means is that we understand we are coming to the Father because of our union with Christ, because of our relationship with Jesus. That's why we, don't have a- we cannot approach God uh, in, our, in our fallen state. We have no right to ask God for anything uh, as sinners. And yet, because of Jesus and because of our union with Christ, we have access to the Father. And so that's what it means to pray in in Jesus' name or through Christ to worship the Father. And then the Spirit uh, is involved in ways we don't quite see or understand, and yet He intercedes for us uh, between us and the Father. That wraps up our study of the Trinity. Sorry we're over time here. We had a lot to pack in. Uh, But next week, we're going to begin a new section uh, on Jesus.